Last week, we left off with the idea of God giving a symbol. And we were introduced to the idea of a covenant, a contract that God makes with the world. The idea that he wants to come into agreement with people. And what he wants to do is he wants to say something that is foundational and unshakable. And then his track record is going to demonstrate his faithfulness. Now, when this was done, which is probably four to 5,000 years ago, we find that there has been nothing to flood the earth since, and we have no reason to doubt God. He has been faithful to what he has promised. But as we see in chapter 10, and we're not going to get too much in chapter 10, but this is often what is known as the table of nations. And what a lot of people have found is you can pull where all the major nations or nationalities have come from, from this one chapter in the Bible. Historically, this is extremely helpful. A lot of people in secular society and sciences and history and things like that would do very well to come back and find out where the people groups that they study actually derive from. And what you find is it's from Noah and his three sons, his wife and their three wives. But there are a couple of characters in this, and when I say that, I'm not, I'm not trying to bring on a fictitious understanding. There's a couple of characters we want to look at. And so, if you're looking at chapter 10, let's look at verse 8. Now, Cush became the father of Nimrod. Now, real quick, does anybody know where Cush is? Anybody polished up on your geography? No? Close. What? Mesopotamia? No, not really. Ah, who said it? Who said it? Good deal. You're exactly right. Ethiopia is the idea. Northern, middle to northern African region. In fact, you find out that whenever Moses' wife dies, he marries a Cushite woman. Now, I really like to, 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 to talk about that because it completely kills uh, our distorted, bigoted Western mindset of interracial marriages. It's very interesting to see that he steps out of that form and he marries a Cushite woman. So notice... From Cush, this is the originator, person of that, that eventually became that nation. It says, became the father of Nimrod. Now, we all know him, right? And how do we often use that word? <laughs> you know what's amazing about this is, is why do we use that word? Well, let's read a little bit. He's the father of Nimrod. He became a mighty one on the earth. Hold on. That doesn't sound like how we use Nimrod, does it? I'm, a, I'm just curious. Husbands, close your eyes. Close your eyes. Wives, have you ever used this word about your husband? Raise your hand. Wow. Okay, see, a lot of husbands were opening their eyes real quick. Okay, just making sure. But notice it says that he's a mighty one. That doesn't sound like what we know as a Nimrod. But notice it says here, verse 9, he was a mighty hunter before the Lord. Therefore, it is said, like Nimrod, a mighty hunter before the Lord. This was actually a coined phrase that described him. This was what he was known as. He had a reputation. He is a mighty hunter before the Lord. Now, this doesn't mean a mighty hunter that was condoned by the Lord, anything like that. You actually find out that it is uh, an antagonistic type of phrase, because look what it says. It says here, verse 10, the beginning of his what? Kingdom was where? Babel. First use in the scriptures of the word kingdom. The very first use. First time it ever pops up. 
Nimrod was known for creating a kingdom, and it was located in the place called Babel. Now, we know Babel as being where, what is? Babylon, Tower of Babel, which we're going to look at today. Later becomes Babylon. We're familiar in Daniel's time, King Nebuchadnezzar. What else is it known as? Two significant places. It's been called many names. Do we know what they are? How about Ur? We ever heard of Ur? Ur of the Chaldeans. That's where Abraham is from. He was actually called just northwest of the Persian Gulf. That section right there is considered Babel, Babylon, Ur of the Chaldeans is a city that was there that he was called out of. Where is it today? Do we know? Iraq. You know that. Right above the Persian Gulf. This place has been a hotbed, a hotbed, and especially prophetically, of satanic activity. It is known as a place where opposing God is considered the norm and probably the very birthplace of it happening within societies of people. Okay? In fact, I wrote this down. Where did I write it down at? Uh, In Revelation, Babylon is described as the mother of harlots. Now, that has very thick Jewish imagery because anytime Yahweh would communicate through the prophets, he would always speak to the nation of Israel in terms of marital unfaithfulness. Marital unfaithfulness in the Old Testament was the equivalent of idolatry, raising up something else as paramount or prominent in moving Yahweh out of the way. So this whole idea seems to have its origination here, and that's kind of what we're going to see today. So notice, his kingdom was in Babel, and Eric and Akkad and Kalnei in the land of Shinar. Now, the entire land of Shinar there is what we're talking about in that region, Iraq, Babylon, that would be the, the province that it's in. From that land, he went forth into Assyria and built where? Nineveh. Where do we know Nineveh from? Jonah. Remember, God said, Jonah, go preach to Nineveh. He said, no, right? We know that from VeggieTales at least, right? Okay, good. It's good. VeggieTales can sometimes give you your theatinoic camp. Um, and Rehoboth, Ur, and Kala. Now, we're going to stop there. But here's the interesting thing. Notice 11. From that land, from the land, now think about it. From the land where he built his kingdom in Babel, in the province of Shinar, He went forth, he left, and went to Assyria and then built Nineveh. Why did he leave? Interesting. Let's move over to verse 25. Two sons were born to Eber. The name of the one was Peleg, for in his days, mark it, the earth was divided. And his brother's name was Joktan. The earth was divided. Now move down to chapter 11, verse 1. Here we go. And you're familiar with this. Now the whole earth used the same language and the same words. They had the same vocabulary. They had the same speech, the same tongue, the same lip. It came about as they journeyed east. Journeyed east from where? Where's the last big event we left off with? What's that? No, not Assyria necessarily. Close. What did we just, what's the big event we just came off of? The flood. And if you remember, Mount Ararat's probably where it was. 
As they came off the ark, they began to multiply and fill the earth, and some of them decided that they were going to move east. Now, what we know geographically is it's actually southeast is how they moved down in that section. And notice what it says here. And they found a plain in the land of where? Shinar. And settled there. Decided they were going to set up shop. Now, everybody keep in your mind Nimrod, right? Okay, moving forward. They said to one another, now, everybody got to talking. That's what that means. Okay, that's the Jeremy version. Everybody got together and they started having meetings and conversation about what was going to go on. And together, they put their minds together and here's what they came up with. Look what it says. Come, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. And they used brick for stone and they used tar or bitumen for mortar. They wanted to establish an immovable structure. Now, why would they want to establish an immovable structure? I mean, when you put baked bricks and you solidify them all together with some sort of tar that's going to stick them together, what in the world are they trying to fight against? Does anybody know? Well, I mean, you just want it to be stable? I mean, that seems like some extreme lengths to go to in order to set that up. What just happened in the world? The flood. Hold it now. Did they see devastation when they came off the ark? You think that was passed on orally? You think they were doing a pretty big cleanup job after a while? Probably. So notice, everybody gets together. Come on, let us set all this up here. Let's bake them thoroughly. Let's stick them together so they won't be moved. It's very interesting here. A good quote that I found. This is from the historian Josephus. Here's the reason why you should read Josephus. Number one, he was alive during that time. He was a Pharisee, and he recorded a lot of things going on in Jewish culture that we've readily forgotten today, and some of the scriptures don't make any sense because we don't have that mindset. But here's the number two thing I love about it. He's not a believer. Now, do I love the fact that he's in hell because he's not a believer? No, hopefully he got saved later, but I don't know. But when he says something about the Bible, Jesus, history, He's speaking at it from an unbelieving viewpoint, and yet he is evidencing the fingerprints of an almighty God. It's very interesting. In fact, do you guys realize that in Josephus' historical writings, he actually writes about the resurrection of Jesus? Now, he doesn't believe. How do you write about the resurrection of Jesus and you're not a believer? Yeah? He's the Christ, the one who raised from the dead, and you're sitting here going, come on, man! How do you not believe? I'm just writing history. You know, somehow history got detached from the word. I don't know. Seems crazy, doesn't it? But here's something that he wrote that I wrote down. He writes that the Tower of Babel was an attempt to create a place of security from the judgments of God. The burnt brick and mortar was an attempt to keep water out. The idea was to make it waterproof. Now, this is what Jewish history is. Is that scripture? No. But it gives you a glimpse into the mindset of these people. Does everybody see the rebelliousness that goes on? Does everybody see that? Please tell me that you do. Just by attempting to build something like this. Well, we're going to stop God from getting us if this happens again. Now, here's the problem. By them attempting that, what have they already forgotten? The promise. 
Wait a second. God's batting a thousand. He doesn't lose. He hasn't failed. He doesn't lie. But in order to reassure ourselves, does everybody see how dangerous this is? In order to reassure ourselves, we're going to build a place where no water can get into. Dangerous. Everybody see how blasphemous that could be? Do they believe that God was telling the truth? No, consequences of unbelief right here. So notice what happens. Verse 4, they say, come, let us build for ourselves, number one, here's what they're building, a city. And, number two, a tower whose top, whose peak will reach into heaven. And let us make for ourselves a what? A name. Three things. City, tower, name. City so we can live. We can kind of understand that, right? Tower so they can get into heaven. Mm, What's going on there? They weren't moving on up to the east side. That wasn't happening. Where would they think they were going? Where did they think they were going? Huh? Heaven. Was she buying a stairway to heaven here? I don't think so. What was it? Works. Is this the most is this the most blatant denial that you've ever seen of God's deliverance? Think about it. Well, if we want to get to heaven, we'll get there. In fact, when I was doing some scraping around, and you can find in some of the rabbinic traditions, this is just how nerdy you can get with this, right? Here was a rabbinic interpretation of this. They would say, it does not rest with God to choose the celestial sphere for himself and assign the earth for us. Let us then make war against him. The building of the tower was actually a declaration of God, we don't need you. God, we know you're there, but we don't care, is the idea. This is the birth of what is called humanism, and we're going to look at that a little bit more in detail here in just a minute, but I want to focus in on this. Now watch what it says here. Let us make a name for ourselves. Top dog is us, is the idea. It says here, otherwise, now pay attention, we will be scattered abroad over the face of the whole earth. What's wrong with that? That's what they were commanded to do. Be fruitful, multiply, and fill the earth. God's clear commandment. Now stop for a second. Does that sound like an oppressive commandment? No! Don't we often think of God's commandments as oppressive? Man, he's just trying to kill my fun. Doesn't sound like it to me. He's saying, go out, have a family, have a large family, and move. Go out wherever you want to. Well, we'd rather stick together. We'd rather make a city. Well, you don't understand. My grandparents are here. We're not going anywhere kind of thing. Let's build a tower so we can get into heaven. He's not going to take us this time. We're going to get rid of God. Here's the thing. Do they know God's there? Yeah. I mean, don't they repeat the reason why we're doing this is to do the opposite of what God has said. Otherwise, we would be scattered out. Here's an interesting thing. Though denying God, is there any is there any doubt whatsoever that the way to get where he is is up? Does everybody see that? See, that's the interesting thing about unbelief is if you listen to somebody talk long enough, 
Their mindset, the way that they operate, the choices that they make will always betray them and give evidence to God. Always. You can't get rid of it. Does everybody understand what I mean by that? Yes? Good? Let me give you one blatant example in our society, okay? Homosexual couples, whether it be lesbian, gay, whatever it is. You ever notice that one has to maintain one role, the other has to maintain the other role? Why is that? Is their conscience not testifying against them that there needs to be a masculine and a feminine counterpart in order for this to work? Everybody see how that works? But they're trying to be original. This is their own idea. This is their own culture. You just don't understand. What I understand that if you were truly gay, you'd be chewing tobacco and drinking beer, holding hands and watching football. I mean, that's actually two guys, right? But no, what you find is one has to capitulate their masculinity or capitulate their femininity in order to compensate in the relationship to make it work. Does everybody see that? So you don't have to say anything about it. You just sit here and let people do what they do and how they act testifies against them. Something is missing here. It's the same way. It's the same way. All we have to do is be knowledgeable of the scriptures and apply what we know about truth to the situation. Now watch what happens. I love it. Verse 5. The Lord did what? Came down. Now where were they going? Where were they trying to go? Up. Did they get up enough? No, you can't get up enough on God because he still has to come down in order to meet you. Isn't that interesting? And we almost sit there and go, you almost want to scratch your head and go, what were these people thinking? What's amazing is they were thinking, let's start a society and let's just go ahead and set God aside in the picture and let's try to move forward successfully. I love that God wouldn't let it happen. The Lord came down to see the city and the tower which the sons of men had built. Now here's what's interesting. Could God not see it? I mean, was something blinded from him? I don't see your city and tower. I got to get down there and look at it. What have you guys been doing? No, that's not the case. But notice what it's saying is, is it's an anthropomorphism. He is coming down. He is setting himself in position to be able to look at them eye to eye, face to face, to deal with the problem personally. Get this. Sin is always personal with God. It is always personal with God. Our sin is never just between me and whoever. Sin is never just something hidden that nobody's going to see. God always knows, and it is always a personal affront to him. So notice, he comes down. He wants to see what they built. Verse 6, the Lord said, Behold, they are one people, and they they all have the same language. And this is what they began to do. And now nothing which they purpose to do will be impossible for them. Does that mean that people can do whatever they want to if they were to stay together? That's not what it's talking about. What he's focusing on is the evil that they've created. This is the beginning of a pattern of defiance for these people. And if we let them stay together, they are going to be perpetually defiant in that direction. You might say, well, didn't he just cleanse the earth of all this mess so we wouldn't have this problem? Yes, but do people still have the conscience? Remember dispensation of conscience? They've eaten of the tree. They know the difference between right and wrong. And yet notice what they want to do. They want to serve self, serve self, serve self. Terrible. Let me tell you how bad this is. Notice that the people had to take the things that were already made and build, right? We're familiar with that. 
Everything we have came from raw materials of something, right? Are they not trying to be God? Yes? Would you agree? Are they not trying to make a name for themselves, be paramount? Absolutely. How does God create? He speaks. And what was existed before that? Nothing. Does everybody see why the difference between a creator and the difference between the creatures is so important? Notice that these people are trying to blur those lines and cross that threshold into deity. Scary place. And here's the thing, when you're focused on yourself, you're not worried about sin. Self-serving. Now let me, think about yourself for just a second. Let's say that you're going to, I don't know, in honor of Pastor Paul, let's say Pizza Ranch, okay? (laughs) And you know the layout, right? You're done with your pizza, you've eaten some chicken, mashed potatoes, whatever. And you're heading over to the soft serve machine. It's broke. (laughs) Who said that? That's not part of the story. (laughs) But what is interesting about the soft serve machine? It's not just soft serve, it's also what? Self-serve. And you look next to the self-serve machine and they got those little... You put them here, and I mean, they're tiny, right? Right? And, 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 and now, we're, now here's the thing. You're looking at that, and you're thinking, but I want more, right? And so, where do you go to get more? Do you come back again? Maybe. What is it? You grab a salad bowl. You look over there, and you go, what do they put soup in here? And you're like, yep, that'll do it. And you swirl it all, and you make sure and get it in the edges so you can move it around, fill it in. Next thing you know, you've built your own creamy little Tower of Babel right here in order for you to eat. Because when you're serving yourself, you will take advantage. And you will gluttonize yourself, if need be, to get what you want. The God, the God of this world is not, I'm sorry, the God of the universe is not holding sway over your taste buds and your stomach at that moment. Because left up to ourselves, the direction we go is away from him, not towards him, even in managing our eating habits. So look what he says, verse 7. Come, let who? Us. Praise God for it, right? Let us go down. And they're confused their language so that, here's the reason, they will not understand one another's speech. So the Lord scattered them abroad, notice that, from there over the face of the whole earth and they stopped building the city. He scattered them abroad. What God wanted done, got done. People either had a choice to obey and cooperate with God and go in that direction or to disobey and God would set them in that direction. Why is it that Nimrod, after creating a kingdom in Babel, left and went to Assyria and made Nineveh? Because the people that were going that direction were the only people that he could understand. Imagine if all of a sudden we could barely understand one another. Maybe there's like three of you that speak Kentucky like I do, right? Or Tennessee. Some of you are still doing the Wisconsin thing, however that is, right? Don't you know? Whatever that is. The waitresses here freak me out, but it's okay. But 
All of a sudden, we're trying to find pockets. Who do I fit with? Who do I fit with? And we're talking to one another, and I can't understand. I can't understand. And there's mass confusion going on. And finally, you find the pocket of your people, and what do you immediately do? You put up an affront against everybody else because you can't understand them. You can't communicate with them. So what do you do? We're all going this way. We can't be here anymore. These people are here. We're going this way. We're going this way. They finally spread out. It says here, verse 9, Therefore its name was called Babel. Very interesting name, Babel. doesn't matter what you put it in. Hebrew, it means confusion or mixture. Uh, in the Babylonian tongue, it's the idea of to scatter. In another Babylonian type of tongue, it's called the gateway of God. It's very interesting, everything that surrounds this name here. They called it Babel because there the Lord confused the language of the whole earth, everyone. And from there, the Lord scattered them abroad over the face of the whole earth. You can disobey Yahweh, but he will still get his way. He will. Now we're going to do something fun. I'm interested to see how this goes because sometimes our Bible study stays in our Bibles. But if you notice, I've given you a separate sheet in your handout. Did everybody get a handout? Everybody got one. They might need one. You have a separate sheet. You need one. Pete, could we get one? Thank you, ma'am. Pete's such a servant. I like Pete. Looking good. <laughs> You got to go home with that. I'm sorry. I will never do that to you again. You know, she's sitting there going, Nimrod. <laughs> All right. So here's what I've done. Humanism. Humanism. I've given you a definition on the back of your notes I've given. We're going to look at this paper in just a second. Let me read you this. this. Secular humanism is the attempt to see the worth of humans apart from, apart from any appeal to God. Thus, humanists often suggest that value is completely intrinsic to the individual. All the value that you have is within you. Now stop for a second. Biblically, what we know, where did your value come from? God. Are you valuable to God? In fact, the whole world is so valuable to God, did he not give his son to die for the whole world? So there's some sort of value that we have, regardless of how sinful and depraved that we are, that God saw worthy in order to sacrifice his son so that he could have a relationship with you and me. There's where your value comes from. Now you take God out of the picture, and where do you find your value now? It's interesting because Babel gives us a glimpse. See, as, as, as people who believe the Bible, we'd say, you don't. But if you take God out of the picture and we look at what Babel, how did they create value? Huh? Themselves, yes. What? Their works. Look at what we can build. Look at what we can do. Look at the name that we can make for ourselves. You ever known people that are just ridiculously driven? And it's almost like they're trying to achieve approval and self-worth somewhere. That is a failure to see ourselves as God sees us. Now, I haven't attempted anything like this with you guys before, and I'm excited about it, but don't ruin it, okay? All right. So this is the modern humanist philosophy by Fred Edwards, and yes, that is the way that you spell his name. And I found this on AmericanHumanist.org, okay? Very interesting site. In fact, one of their bylines was, uh, good without a God, that's one of their things. We're good without a God. We're good people. We're good people. So, uh, and here's what I'm going to ask you to do. If you want to take your pen and write this in, this is important, okay? Everybody stick with me here, okay? Number one, you want to watch for loaded 
language. Very important. Because here's what we're doing. We're taking the concept that we see in the Tower of Babel and what we've seen in the first 11 chapters of Genesis. And we're going to ask ourselves, when we come across a worldview, a different way of thinking, how do we take what we know as biblical Christians who believe in the Scriptures and we engage the world around us so that we don't compromise our positions? Number one, watch for loaded language. Number two, every truth claim needs a basis. Please write that down. Every truth claim. See, you guys need pens now. Who needs a pen? Okay, making sure. Don't lie, you're in church. Every truth claim needs a basis. It has to have a foundational. If somebody is going to make a truth claim, you've got to have something to stand on in order for it to be valid. Does that make sense? Okay, we're getting to a little bit of apologetics today. And here's the question we're going to ask ourselves. You don't have to write this down. I just want you to think about it. What does Yahweh tell us in Genesis 1 through 11 that flies in the face of what we're getting ready to read? Think about the foundation in in the first 11 chapters of Genesis that Yahweh has set down for you and I to know. What things in Scripture do we find that fly in the face of what we're going to see? And I've underlined some key words for you. So here we go. Number one, humanism is one of those philosophies for people who think for themselves there is no area of thought that a humanist is afraid to challenge or and explore. Does everybody see the it's a philosophy for those who think for themselves? What does that imply about people who aren't humanists? They don't think for themselves. What's that? They follow blindly. I like it because we're going to see here in just a minute they have arbitrary faith. What's the word arbitrary mean? We know. Anybody, any dictionary.com people? Anybody know it? Arbitrary faith. Capricious faith is the idea. It's the idea that it's unsupportable is the idea. You can't support the faith that you have. Is that true for Christianity? No, but when they say arbitrary faith, what have they done? They've already taken your Bible and thrown it out the bus window and into a ditch, right? Terrible. So notice, it's for those who think for themselves. There's no, now pay attention to this, there is no area of thought that a humanist is afraid to challenge and explore. Sounds good, doesn't it? We're open to everybody. Was anybody in Baraboo yesterday? Anybody? Anybody. Really? Yeah, my wife was. Man, they were having some kind of peace, love, hippie fest going on at the square yesterday. And that cannon they have on the lawn out there, everybody seen the cannon? They had this styrofoam, and it's got to be yellow in colors, right? It's got to have colors. Yellow in there, and all of these things are sticking out, and it's peace signs, and it's all this stuff. And I'm like, what in the world is going on? And I about wanted to turn my son loose so he could rip it apart, man. I just craziness. You know, we're just trying to make the world a better place. We just want peace for everybody, and we want to bring an end to war, and we want to bring an end to poverty. And I'm sitting here thinking all this time, I'm like, has anybody ever talked to the Prince of Peace about this? You know who I couldn't find there was God. Couldn't find him. And what was amazing was the United Church of Christ has a booth. You can't find God. Nobody's talking about him being the way, the truth, and the life. It was a display on the lawn of humanism. 
We're going to do it. We're going to conjure it. We just got to work together, stick together, accept everybody's differences. We can think for ourselves, and we'll just bring all the world's ills unto the peace. Oh, if John Lennon were only here to sing Give Peace a Chance, which was one of the songs they wanted to play. Great. Number two, humanism is a philosophy focused upon human means for comprehending reality. Uh Uh-oh. Human means for comprehending reality. Let me ask you a question. Can you see the supernatural? Is it there? Yes. Which means that if you're a humanist, you are only verifying or dealing with 50% of what's real. Just because it's supernatural doesn't mean it's not real. You see what I'm saying? Is God supernatural? Is he very much real? Yes. Can we see him? No, in fact, Jesus tells us and there's no man at any time that has seen God. Only the Son has seen Him and testifies about Him, right? So notice, just because you can't see it, just because it's supernatural we can't comprehend it, doesn't mean that it's not there. It is very much real. But notice what they're saying here. We're focused upon human means for comprehending reality. Humanists make no claims to possess or have access to supposed transcendent knowledge. And here's the definition of transcendent to show you how biased your dictionaries are against an almighty creator. The definition of transcendent is going beyond ordinary limits. Now stop for a second, because this is where your Bible stories get out of being stories and capped into the mindset of Sunday school and become the very reality. Is it possible for walking on water? It is. Can you do it? No, but is there someone who can? You see what I'm saying? Does that make it true? Yeah, it's possible. You see what I'm saying? That's never true. No one can do that. Time out. I have a historical record of a bunch of people who saw it and wrote it down. Eyewitnesses who saw Jesus come walking on water. It's possible. Oh, now we don't want to talk about that. Why? Because Jesus is the monkey wrench in everybody's mindset. No one can handle him or deal with him, especially a humanist. But notice here, Notice what it says. Humanists make no claims to possess or have access to supposed transcendent knowledge, refusing to operate knowing the supernatural. What do you got? So even the first two points, intrinsic in both of those, Mm -hmm. is what you alluded to before. We're talking about people who exist intrinsically. How do people know who Jesus is? Exactly. Yes. Good point. Notice this. We're going to think for ourselves. Pause. Who gave you the ability to think? And where did human means come from? Yes. And here's the thing. Do you know what they'll tell you where they came from? We're just globs of goo, and it rained a lot on rocks, and all of a sudden, boom, here we are, and we need millions and millions and millions and millions of years. No science that starts with God can verify that idea. Man, are you going to talk all day? Yeah, so my favorite way to make that whole logic point laugh is if lightning struck the junkyard enough times would a 50-mile headlight emerge? That'd be cool. Right? (laughs) Yeah, but it doesn't. You're right. You're right. It is ridiculous. All right, number three. This Put the train back on the track, Okay. (laughs) There's only one thing you guys need to remember. 
I have the microphone. All right, number three. Number three, watch the language. Humanism is a philosophy. It is a way of thinking about life. Don't let the word philosophy throw you because it's a $10 Scrabble word, okay? It is a way that we think about life. How do we look at life and how do we operate or respond in life? Here it is. Humanism is a philosophy of reason and science in pursuit of knowledge. Pause. Proverbs 1.7. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Fools, or sorry, the beginning of knowledge. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. Everybody notice where knowledge starts? Okay, think about that. Therefore, when it comes to the questions of the most valid means for acquiring knowledge of the world, humanists reject, here it is, arbitrary faith, okay? A faith that is not supported on anything. Have you found anybody that can prove the Bible wrong yet? I mean, we've only had 1,700 years to do it. Anybody found that yet? No, nobody can, okay? Arbitrary faith, notice, notice the language. It's propaganda. Notice the next one. What is it? Authority. We reject authority. Stop! Who's in charge of y'all? If the humanist mindset rejects authority, who's in charge of you? Well, we're all in charge of our own little areas in the world. Well, what's right for you might not be right for me. I feel that it's so right for me that everybody empties their cash into my pocket. See, now all of a sudden we have standards. That's not right. It's right for me. It may not be right for you, but it's right for me. The next one, what does it say? Revelation. Now, that's not the book of Revelation. That's just revelation in general, supernatural revelation. God revealing himself. Stop. What are the two ways that God reveals himself? General revelation is found in what? Creation and nature. Special revelation is found in the Word of God. Remember, the Word of God, one of our basic tenets we've been looking at, the Word of God is his self-revelation. He wants to be known. Now, we're going to start with rejecting that. Our starting point before we move forward is no God. This is how you get the evolution-creation debate. You go, to the, you go to Answers in Genesis, you go to the Creation Museum, and that's the first thing they tell you right there. We're digging up this fossils here. This guy is going to start with there is no God. I'm going to start that there is a God and that he had a flood that came over the earth. And that's how we're going to move forward and come to our conclusions. Those roads are not going to mix. Why? Because your starting points are messed up. Notice what it says, an altered states of consciousness. Now, I don't know about you, but this whole thing sounds like an altered state of consciousness to me. Uh, number four, humanism is a philosophy of imagination, Right? Right? Isn't that what kids deal primarily in? Imagination. If you have a one to five year old, that's where you are, right? Humanists recognize that intuitive feelings, hunches, speculation, flashes of inspiration, emotion, altered states of consciousness, there's that is again, they must love that. And even religious experience, while not valid means to acquire knowledge, not valid means to acquire knowledge, okay? remain useful sources of ideas that can lead us to new ways of looking at the world. These ideas, after they have been, now pause, here's the trigger phrase right here. These ideas, even though they're not valid for you to acquire knowledge, but they can help you look at the world in new ways. Everybody see the contradiction here? Now watch this. These ideas, after they've been assessed, 
rationally pause. Pause. Who assesses them rationally? Who's in charge? And what does being rational mean if you don't have a God who sets the standard for right and wrong? You see what I'm saying? Looking at this and saying, wait a second, y'all lost your minds. Because it makes no sense. The truth is up for grabs. And it gets reinterpreted and reinterpreted and reinterpreted. Now watch this. These ideas, after they have been assessed rationally for their usefulness, for what purpose? What would they be useful for? See, high school students, college students, pay attention to this. Because this is where your biology... This is where your philosophy professors are going to take you to the rack and they are going to destroy you. And you will come back after your freshman year an atheist if you can't engage this. Pay attention. Loaded language. And it all comes from a baseless worldview, one apart from God. So look here. Assessed rationally for their usefulness can then, after it's assessed rationally according to no standard, can then be put to work often as alternative approaches to solving problems. Sounds like new math. (laughs) Sounds like new math. What in the world? Does everybody see this? I mean, this is fun. Let's keep going. They're trying to confuse you, yes. Verse 5, or verse (laughs) 5. Let's hope not. Good. (laughs) That's how you know you're dealing with a preacher. Number 5. Humanism is a philosophy for the here and now. Stop. What do they just do? What do they just do? It's a philosophy for the here and now. What do they just do? Hold on. What? Thrown out history. They're appealing to relevance. That's what a lot of churches have done now in the seeker-sensitive movement. We're appealing to relevance. And what have they done? They've covered up truth. Terrible. Terrible. I'm appealing to it's for the here and now, not for those old people left in the past. Those people have obviously never pastored a church where the 34-year-old guy was the oldest person in the church for six years. Ding, 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 ding. (laughs) Terrible, you need that wisdom. Humanists regard human values as making sense. Now stop, that's comical, right? Humanists regard human values, who determines that value, as making sense only in the context of human life rather than in the promise of a supposed life after death. All that matters is here. All that matters is now. Or let me give you this. YOLO! Anybody heard that? Y-O-L-O. You only live once. You know what people do with that? So just go do whatever you want to do. If it feels good, do it. I promise you this. If it feels good and you do it, it ain't going to feel good afterwards. Because it's got things attached to it like gonorrhea and syphilis. Don't do it. I mean, stop for a second. No, let's touch it real quick. Stop for a second. Stop for a second and think about it. Think about it for just... Come on, y'all. Listen. Listen, think about it for just a second. Stop and let your imagination run according to the truth. If everybody on earth operated their intimate relationships only to how God commanded in the word, 
do you realize that after a couple of generations, all sexually transmitted diseases would be gone? See, God is always right, and people want to do whatever they can to cover it up. His word is always true. It's always faithful. It's always correct. It's always spot on. And sometimes it's so, oh my gosh, that we can't handle it and we got to find some way to blind ourselves or to cover it up or to rationalize or to say, no, that can't be the way it is. Does anybody know why the truth is so true? Well, not just because it's true, but it's supposed to evoke something in you. Do you know what that is? Do you know with the fact that you have an almighty God who is your creator, who you are accountable and answerable to, and his word has even been translated in the English language so that all of us are completely without excuse, not just to his presence, but also to what he asks of the people that he created. And it is supposed to evoke something in you and me. And you know what that is? It's the very thing that the people at Babel had completely rejected, gone, covered up, suppressed, Get rid of it if we don't have anything to do it. And it's the thing that we hate the most, and it's called humility. We are to be humble before an almighty creator and God. And we have to laugh at this. Why? Because this is sad. It's ridiculous that there are entire masses of people all over this earth, that this is what they abide by. And the very first thing they've done when they set out on this path was, yeah, this makes sense because it gets rid of God. So I'll just be happy without him. It is insanity. If the word of God is true, this is insanity that you hold in your hands. It is so crucial. It is godless by its very declaration of how it's set up. And until we come to understanding of who we are answerable to and realize who we are in the sinfulness that we constantly bring to the table, we will not experience that humility that we need to have before him. We will think better and more of ourselves, and that will not stand before him. It is much better to humble ourselves than to have him humble us. Let me read for you a couple of more things. There's all kinds of things you can do on here, and I encourage you to read through it and look. I don't want to take up all of our time. Let's read number eight on the back. Notice the the words used. Humanism is in tune. Trying to appeal to that younger crowd. Hey, guys, we're in tune. Everybody see that? We're in tune with the science of today. Humanists, therefore, recognize that we live in a natural universe of great size and age notice they've just pushed evolution they've just pushed naturalism there's nothing supernatural about where we live everybody see that notice what it says here that here it is we evolved on this planet over a long period of time because you have to have millions of years in order for that to begin to make any sort of sense whatsoever and notice what it says here that there is no compelling evidence for a separable soul and that human beings have certain built-in needs pause no compelling evidence compelling to who who does it have to compel in order for it to be true if it has to compel you who who is now the decider of right and wrong you and i are everybody see that well i'm just not compelled that that's true 
regardless of what we believe, doesn't matter about what is true or not. How many of you lived in unbelief of Jesus Christ for a while before you believed in him? Everybody in this room. So we all come from that point. But now watch the language, watch it. There's no compelling evidence for a separable soul and that human beings, now watch this, have certain, pay attention, it's giving itself away, built-in needs. Stop. Who put them there? They know that they're built in, but who put them there? That effectively form, effectively form, you can't help but to show them. You got to show your cards as a person for your built-in needs. You can't cover them up. You can never suppress them. They just come out. Anybody ever tried to modify your behavior? Anybody? Yeah? It's usually when you're hanging out with people you really don't want to hang out with. We're really not those people, right? Start shoving all dirty clothes under the bed. We're really not like that. See what I'm saying? Very important. Notice, they all come out somehow. Built-in needs that effectively form the basis, the basis, the foundation for, watch this, for any human-oriented value system. Human-oriented value system. Who determines what's right and wrong? Because if the majority rules, if that's how we're doing it, then we've been effectively killing children since 1973. That's what you get when you have a human-oriented value system. You see how that works? Extremely dangerous, the language is slippery. In other words, it completely denies a creator. Now, here's the thing. You've probably heard of the guy Bertrand Russell. Anybody heard of him, Bertrand Russell? Okay, go down to the bottom of your page. Two quotes I found that were interesting about his human mind, humanism mindset. The only thing that will redeem mankind is cooperation. Does everybody see that he intentionally uses the word redeem? Redeem. You need to be redeemed. He knows that. The only thing that's going to do it, the only person that's going to redeem you is who? Us. Somehow, if we just work together, we'll all get redeemed somehow. Everybody see it's a works mentality. Here's the one I like the next one. I would never die for my beliefs because I might be wrong. <laughs> now, now, now pause for a second. If you were to attend a philosophy class in college, you would read his works. And we would talk about how deep he was. And we would talk about how amazing he is. And wow, he was really a forward thinker about this kind of stuff. And boy, he was really breaking ground and coming to new vistas of understanding about our makeup and our emotions and our capacity. No, it says right here that he can't be sure of anything and he's a liar. That's what it says. So nobody wants to say that in philosophy class. It is. The first one is Babylon all over again. Let's just get together. Let's just build a city. Let's just build a tower. Let's just make a name of ourselves. Now, here's the thing. You know where this really hurts, this humanism mindset? Is you realize it creeps into the church sometimes? Well, let's just build this building. Well, let's just make sure that everybody knows about us. I've heard this, and it's disturbing. I'll just go ahead and tell you right now. Well, you got to come because you got to hear Jeremy preach. Don't ever, don't ever, don't ever, please, I beg you, don't ever invite anybody here to hear me preach. Invite them here to hear what God has to say. That's the difference. My preaching is going to be okay one day and stink the next. That's life. But God's word never fails. 
God's word is always true. And God's word is always meant to evoke in you and me, even as believers who have a personal relationship with him through Christ our Lord. It is always meant to invoke in us humility. Humility. So here's a question to answer. Are you in a humble relationship with the creator of all things? Or, when we look at some of the things we say, the way that we think, our interactions with others, the things that motivate us to do what we do, are we finding pockets of humanism where the enemy has crept in and made us operate in unbelief? It's important to assess that. Let's pray together. Father, at this time, search our hearts. Whether we value something more than you, whether we have elevated something of ourselves to a position that you should hold. Father, if we are thinking in our lives in some way that is apart from what you've revealed, Father, you are the authority. You do give us the foundation for our faith. You are the almighty creator. And Father, if it has not sunk into us that we are answerable to you, even as Christians, we will be at the judgment seat of Christ answerable for this new life that you've given us, how we've stewarded it on this earth. Father, help us. Whatever area it may be, bring us to the end of ourselves. Cause our minds to reflect upon what your word has clearly said. And I pray, Father, that we are changed today because the word of God and the Holy Spirit have made it so. Father, let us confess to you where we fail so that our fellowship with you would be restored. Father, renew our minds according to the word. We pray it in Jesus' name, amen.